I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So before we get into the opening prayer, brothers and sisters, I think it would be wise to, like I did last week, uh, make a few comments about what's going on uh, currently in our, in our country in regards to uh, racial tensions. And last week I talked a little bit about how just because you, don't ex- you haven't had an experience uh, of somebody else doesn't mean that their experience isn't, that they haven't actually had that experience. And just because you see something, or uh, sorry, just because you don't see something doesn't mean that it's actually not really there. And uh, there's been a lot of, uh, of rioting and uh, looting in places like this. And um, it's unfortunate because a lot of the rioting has been inflamed by both far-right groups and by far-left groups. And one of the things I hopefully hope that you've picked up from my three years here with you is that if, if, I, if I speak strongly against the right, I'm also going to speak strongly against the left. And if I speak strongly against the left, I'm going to also speak strongly against the right because both sides have their positive points and both sides absolutely have their blind spots. And so both deserve the church's attention and both deserve the church's critique. And that's the church's job. Part of it is to, as leaders in the church, is to stand up and come against and to speak against and to act against wickedness when we see it in in our culture. And so what I'm going to do very briefly this morning before we get started with the rest of the service is I'm going to talk a little bit, and I know some of you are going to be squirming in your chair, but just, you know me, you trust me, just, just bear with me. So one word that you've been hearing a lot of right now is a term called white privilege, okay? And so when when, when racial conflicts erupt, right, one of the terms that gets thrown around is, well, you have, as a white person, you have white privilege. So a lot of people who are white react against this negatively. I did when I first heard it described to me because we associate privilege with affluence. We associate the word privilege with lots of money in the bank, but that's not necessarily what privilege means because there are many white people who are poor. There are many white people who have not had an opportunity for a good education. There are many white people who have not been able to find a good job that they're able to live and survive and to save. So privilege doesn't necessarily mean affluence. And the best way to, I think, understand this can be illustrated by something I heard yesterday. I was at the hardware store of all places and I was getting a spool so I could uh, refill the, the spool that was used in my weed whacker so I could you know, trim the weeds in our, in our yard. And as I was standing there waiting, because there was a line, there was another register, and I heard an older white guy complaining about a bad experience at, I think he said, ShopRite. He was waiting for a sandwich to be made, and he got into an altercation with either the customer or the person behind the counter, and it got to such a point where the, the police were threatened to be called on him. And he said, now I know how black people feel. That's white privilege. When we talk about white privilege, that's what that means. He does not know how black people feel. Just because you had a negative experience does not equate that with 
hundreds and hundreds of years of, of inequality, right? So don't react negatively when you hear terms like that. And so what's unfortunate is there have been lots of pe peaceful protests and we need to be able to do that. And fortunately here in Allentown and Easton, we've had peaceful ones. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of the congregation for being very measured in your reactions, especially on social media. Um, and so thank all of you for that. And I ask that you would continue to pray for the peace of our nation and look for ways in your own personal lives to not tell people what they should think or how they should think, but to listen to what other people have to say. And hopefully we can learn from each other and we can heal. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer for peace and pray a prayer for love. And then we'll go right from that into uh, the call to worship. Almighty God and creator, you are the father of all people on the earth. Guide, I pray, all the nations and their leaders in the way of justice and peace. Protect us from the evils of injustice, prejudice, exploitation, conflict, and war. Mistrust, bitterness, and hatred. Teach us to cease the storing and using of implements of war. Lead us to find peace, respect, and freedom. Unite us in the making and sharing of tools of peace against ignorance, poverty, disease, and oppression. Grant that we may grow in harmony and friendship as brothers and sisters created in your image to your honor and praise. Christ my God set, well our God, set our hearts on fire with love in you, then in its flame we may love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, and our neighbors as ourselves, so that by keeping your commandments we may glorify you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Amen. So like I said, brothers and sisters, this morning, uh, this is Trinity Sunday. And I, like I said, I, I start with this every Trinity Sunday, but humor me because I think his point is well worth, is well taken and worth repeating. Uh, there's a theologian named Ben Myers. He's also a professor. He said this, how to combat Trinitarian heresies? Start by abolishing Trinity Sunday that faithful day on the which preachers think that they need to explain it. He also goes on, he has a whole list of them. Stop trying to use natural analogies, you know, to explain, to explain, you know, God, like, you know, the egg, the yolk, the shell, and the white part. That, that's not, those aren't helpful because it's not quite what's going on here. So in, in that light, I'm not going to preach explicitly on the doctrine of the Trinity this morning. And something interesting happened, brothers and sisters. I was, <laughs> I was writing this, and I had a whole thing, right? I was like, ooh, Genesis, light and darkness and the creation and the separation of darkness from the light. And I can preach on the separation in our heart to the light from the darkness, and Christ is the light. And I started typing this up, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it. It just, it just flowing. And look, not every sermon, right, is going to be like, whoa, it all came together completely perfectly with no trouble whatsoever. Some you just have to fight through, but it just wasn't coming together. And so I scrapped it and I started writing, <laughs> I started writing another sermon. And that one, I was also kind of, I was, mm, I just couldn't get it. So I scrapped that and I threw that one away. And then I started again, focusing on instead the passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 the small, very small, short passage. And so we're going to spend most of our time there today in St. Paul's closing words to the church of Corinth. 
And he said this, I'm going to repeat it. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And then he says, may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if there's any other example, well, and I think this is why I, I, I finally latched on with this, this, this portion here. If there's any example in scripture that looks just like our society and our culture now, it's this one. If there's any, right, you can look and you can search in the Bible, but I think the church at Corinth is like a mirror of our society at the moment. Like there's some key differences, but there's a lot of similarities too. And when we read the book of First and Second Corinthians, we're shocked by just how alike our societies were. They were running around like crazy back then. Crazy back then. And I think that the problems in the church of Corinth speak to a couple of different things. The first thing that I think the problems at the church of Corinth speak to is the problem of our disordered human nature. So as human beings, we have become disordered by sin. And I think one of the people who had their pulse on just what that meant was St. Augustine, and I would highly recommend you go read his confessions. We are, in fact, Scripture says, dead in our sins. Sin and the fear of death is passed on from person to person. And I don't like to see sin in terms of guilt being passed on. I rather, I think the best way to understand sin and how we are all under its sway is through using trauma as an example of how sin is passed on. So psychology today speaks of trauma being passed on generationally like this. Psychic legacies are often passed on through unconscious cues or effective messages that flow between adult and child. Sometimes anxiety falls from one generation to the next through stories told. Right? So unconscious cues messages, stories, these are all ways that trauma in the human person can be passed on generationally. Sin, I like to think of it, is the trauma of the first human rebellion against God, passed down from person to person to person. Through stories, through unconscious cues, through effective messages. But it's not just mental right it's also spiritual but i think the, the the analogy is an apt one and so jesus christ comes on the scene and through his perfect life and his atoning death and resurrection in the glory he models what it means for us to be truly human to be fully human and to be truly free and truly alive and so the christian life then brothers and sisters is our training to be conformed into the image of jesus christ as St. Paul says, we behold his image being transformed from glory to glory. And that divine image that we received at creation, which was marred by sin, becomes renewed, giving way to our eternal transformation into glory. Now, because we don't know how to be human 
or that our humanity has been infected by sin. I also like sin as a virus too, not just the example of trauma, but also as a disease. We then in turn sin against others, right? So all humanity, Paul says in Romans, we are all without excuse. This is why the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, I think is so powerful and so impossibly difficult because it describes how we are to live in God's kingdom and to be God's people. And that's why some Christians try to excuse away the Sermon on the Mount by saying, well, that's just for the Old Testament. Jesus was just commenting on the law. So for us in the New Testament, it's just like, a, it's, it's like the pirate code from Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more like a guideline that we don't really have to follow if we don't want to. But that's not true. The Sermon on the Mount is what life in the kingdom of God is like. I preached a series many years ago when I was working somewhere else called The Kingdom of God is Like. And we looked at that from, maybe I'll preach it here again. Let's see, I'm th- I've been thinking about it. Disordered humanity revels in sin and needs to be reoriented to God. And in Corinth, there is discrimination on display. Specifically, there is discrimination between the rich and the poor. When they came together to celebrate the Eucharist, they would also have a corporate meal for the people. And so for many of the people who happen to be poor, because you have to remember when Christianity first starts to spread, it's not people who have status and position in society who become Christians early on. It's those who society looked down upon. Women, slaves, people who had no social standing whatsoever, the people who Jesus chooses to spread his message are fishermen from Galilee. No, no real theological education. They weren't known for producing philosophical uh, titanic figures that could go toe-to-toe with you know, everyone. No. Paul says earlier in Corinthians, you know, God uses the foolish things. So what would happen is that the poor would come to these meals. But sometimes they would get there and there wouldn't be any food left over. And then some people who were eating and drinking, they would eat all of the food and they would keep drinking until they were drunk. And then they would go into the Lord's Supper engorged on food and being completely drunk and partaking of the body and blood of Christ, which leads St. Paul basically to say, you guys better knock it off. That's why some of you are dying. Many were being neglected because the better off members who could get there earlier were eating and drinking everything before everyone else could have a portion. And St. Paul, he takes them to task for this. Disordered human nature. Then we see factionalism on display in Corinth. The other reality St. Paul had to deal with in his letters was factionalism. And we see the early church had a problem with factions, specifically between the Jews and the Gentiles. So we see this in the book of Acts. Some Jewish Christians said to the Gentile uh, people who wanted to become Christians, they said, okay, that's fine. You want to come and be a Christian? That's good. You need to go and become Jewish first, and then you can become Christian. So if you were a Gentile male especially, what would that mean for you? I meant you would have to go and be circumcised first before you could come and be a Christian. 
And that's one of the <laughs> one of the early issues in the early church. St. Paul would go somewhere and he would bring Gentiles into the church and then he would leave. And then other people would come and say, hey, we're from the apostles too. Guess what? You need to be circumcised if you really want to be a Christian. And this caused a lot of controversy. So they all get together in Acts 15 and they have the first church council in Jerusalem. And what happens? St. James gets up and he says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not lay on you any burdens except these. And he says, so he's essentially saying you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. He says, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Refrain from sexual immorality. Don't eat things with the blood in it and you'll be good. One of the first major problems in the church was factionalism. And this continues here in the church of Corinth, except their factionalism was a little bit different. Their factionalism was people weren't listening to the leadership in the church, right? So what they would do is, is they would say, well, I listen to, and St. Paul, he's my guy. I really like the cut of his jib. I'm the, he's the guy that I go to. I love his books. I love his podcasts. I get all the things I want to know from St. Paul. And then somebody said, well, Paul, he's great, but he's not a good a preacher and teacher as this guy, Apollos. Remember him? Apollos was awesome. Apollos, he's my guy. I read his books. I, I listen to his podcasts. I go to his website. And then somebody said, no, 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 no. I follow Peter the Rock, St. Peter the Rock. I listen to his podcast. I read his books. Paul and Apollos, those guys are great. But Peter, guess who he walked through? Maybe you've heard of him, some guy named Jesus. And then they fix their hipster glasses. And then somebody has to go a step further, right? And they said, Peter, Paul, you know, Apollos, that's great. You know who I follow? And everyone's like, who do you follow? And they say, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Because, right, if you play the Jesus card, that trumps basically everything else. Everything else. And we, I'm sure we all know that person, you know, who wants to go do something wrong and they're going to make a decision that if they do it will wreck their life. And you come to them and you say, no, you shouldn't do that. And then they pull the card out. Oh, yeah? God told me, thus ending the conversation. No, no, I'm sorry. God did not tell you to divorce your wife and abandon your kids for another partner. That was actually the devil, by the way. People will use, will use the God card, right? The factionalism to get out of it. St. Paul is like, stop. You have to stop this factionalism. We are all laboring together, working for the same goal for you. And factionalism is so sinister because it causes people to rally around one person or around one cause rather than rallying. Well, let me put it like this. When we rally together around one person or around one cause, it happens at the expense of being able to actually interact with one another. Because factionalism makes us unable to listen to another person. And the other day, to, by way of illustration, I was having a conversation online, and we see this on social media all the time, factionalism. And I was in a Facebook group, and the topic was uh, about baptism. And this particular person I was interacting with, they had a very particular theology, which was, well, I guess, odd. 
And so I was respectful and tactful because I was a keyboard warrior many years ago and I found out a great way to lose friends and to be thought of as a jerk face, there's that word again, Jeanette, you're welcome, was to be a keyboard warrior and correct everyone's mistakes. I was that guy and I've since learned from that. Some people never learn. I was respectful, I was tactful, I made my points, but we got to a point in the conversation where he just shut down. He wouldn't interact anymore, and then he started calling me names. I didn't call him a name, we were just talking back and forth, I was asking him some questions, and then he's like, you're rebellious against God, you are wicked, you need to repent, and you need to get saved. I'm like, me? I, mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I've, I've done that. I needed to repent. I was in rebellion. He was so caught up in the theology of his faction. He was unable to have a simple conversation. And when challenged with a different point of view, instead of interacting with that point of view, he shut it down. And that's what happens when we embrace factions. And I think one major area where factionalism has been clearest, how the Church of Corinth is a mirror to our own culture, has been on the recent problems regarding race relations and police brutality and the, sub uh, and the subsequent rioting and protesting. So let me give you an example here. So when somebody says, Black Lives Matter, I see this online all the time, another person will immediately chime in and say, uh, actually, all lives matter, just by the way. That response is a perfect example of missing the point. So let me, show, let me put it to you like this. So when Jesus tells the parable of leaving the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep, the 99 sheep don't stand up and say, hey, all sheep matter, Jesus, not just the one that's lost that you're leaving us behind to find. All sheep matter. But in the parable, the one lost at the time matters because the other 99 are safe with the shepherd. The shepherd has to leave the 99 behind, in safety, by the way, to go find the one that's lost. Just because Jesus is looking at and focusing on finding that one lost sheep doesn't mean that all the other ones don't matter. Jesus is pointing his attention onto the one that needs the attention at the time. Factionalism makes us unable to hear one another because we are scared that we might be in the wrong, so we yell louder at one another, and we drown out the hurting and the dying of those in need. So what is St. Paul's cure here? Well, we know the cure begins with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that the cure begins with the act of becoming a new creation. When we are united to Christ through faith and baptism, that is the beginning of the cure for us. But it doesn't magically make everything all better. We actually have to learn to live with one another, which was the problem in Corinth. So St. Paul here, he says, rejoice. Rejoice in what? Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice that God has called you out of darkness. Rejoice that God has saved you from sin and death. Rejoice that you have peace with God. Rejoice in the blessings God has given you. Rejoice in the community of believers in which you are a part. Rejoice. 
even in the middle of really trying circumstances, even in the middle of really hard times, even sometimes in the middle of suffering, we need to learn to rejoice. If we don't have anything of our own to rejoice in, we can at least rejoice in God and what God has done for us. I think the second part of the cure is restoration, he says here. There can be no relationship in a community without restoration and the means to be reconciled. In our own day and time, you know, we see the the rise of cancel culture going after those who would violate the rules of social progressivism. People say and do stupid things and they need to experience the consequences of their actions. But we have to learn to not just punish, but we need to learn to restore Right? Even in like regards to criminal justice, not just punish. We need to learn to restore. That cyclical systems are broken down so people don't have to turn back into former way of life when they get out of prison. And also in the church, right? If there's no restoration in the church, then there's no restoration possible anywhere. And we have to understand, restoration doesn't mean that everything goes back to the way it was before. Restoration is a process. Restoration is a process. It's not just someone saying you're restored. And to be part of that restoration process, you have to be willing to participate in it too. I'm thinking of brothers and sisters recently. I won't say his name, but there's this outlandish healing uh, evangelist that was, anyway, I won't get into the details, but he um, was notorious for holding these very weird healing meetings, you know, where you know, the Holy Spirit told me to punch you in the stomach and heal you of cancer, so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Got into some problems, texting, divorced his wife, wound up remarrying a, a woman he had an affair with, and then he went through a process of restoration and they're like, yeah, you're restored. And he's like, great. A couple years later, what happens? They find out, oh, he's been texting girls again. And then they're like, come, be restored. No, no, I don't need to be restored. <laughs> I'm fine. No, you guys are all in the wrong. That's not restoration. That's not reconciliation. That's an example of, of how not to do it. And I'm thinking also, right, we have a picture of restoration here in Corinthians itself. So in 1 Corinthians, a man is having an affair, or sorry, let's just say committing adultery. He's committing adultery. I hate the word affair. It's so stupid. Adultery. You are committing adultery with his mother-in-law, right? Or his st- stepmother, I think. So Saint pa- and then they're still allowing him into the church. And St. Paul says, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? This dude is committing one of the worst sexual sins imaginable and you're letting him into your service as if everything is okay and you're actually rejoicing in that? Paul says, kick him out. Remove him. (laughs) Right? So hopefully that might lead him to repentance and he can be saved. We don't like that kind of talk. Anyway, but what happens when you read 2 Corinthians, we see St. Paul says, he says to them, bring him back. Why? Because reconciliation and restoration occurred. The sin had been dealt with and ended. And Paul says, bring him back in and restore him. That's what the grace of God does. 
even in the middle of the worst sins imaginable. The worst sin that you've ever done, the worst sin you might be committing right now, the, the worst sin you might be committing later, right? The grace of God will reconcile you and bring you back. If Christ has restored us to right relationship with God, then we can learn to restore one another. And if we can learn to restore one another, then we can learn to be agents of reconciliation in the world around us and outside of us. The third thing he says here, he says, comfort one another. Comfort one another. When things go bad, show up. If you know of somebody who's suffering, do something about it. If you have a friend in the church you haven't seen a while, call them. How are you doing? If a loved one of a, of a, a, a church member has died, are you okay? What can I do? How can we support you? Is there anything you need? When Isaac was first born and we brought him back home from the hospital, his godparents brought us a big old plate, I think, of, 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 of lasagna. We ate that lasagna, believe me. <laughs> I didn't want to cook. They didn't want to cook. Her, her, her Isaac's godmother brought a big plate of lasagna. And then her sister, her sister, brought us a whole bunch of chicken. And people came and brought us food and left it. And we put it in the freezer. We ate some of it, put some of it in the freezer. That was a comfort to us. That helped us. Because we had a lot going on. That's a simple way of comforting. A comfort can even be, well, now we're coronavirus time, right? But a comfort can even be a hand on the shoulder. You look like you need a hug. You look like you need a hug. I'm going to embarrass her for a minute, but Cindy Krill, she's sitting here singing with us today. And uh, I had, we were at the, when we worked for Bethleth, uh, Bethlehem Emergency Services, when we stayed overnight and, and fed the homeless, you know, Cindy had a person personal going on in her own life and I remember I had just received some bad news too about something that had happened in my personal life in my family life when we saw each other at the emergency services she walked over and gave me a hug because she knew about it and she comforted me in that even though she had some deep pain going on on her own she saw that in me and took the time to offer me comfort that brings healing then St. Paul says, agree with one another. Agree with one another and to live in peace. Because when we agree with one another, when we live at peace with one another, the peace and the love of God will be with us. When we come together on what is needed, right? When we gather around worship of God as revealed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who God is, what God has done, then we can come together for the mission and the purpose of the church. And if we can do that, then we can learn to live at peace with one another. Churches like this were hundreds of years old. And I'm sure in those hundreds of years, in the history of this church, there have been some factions, and there have been some hurt feelings, and there have been people who have not lived in peace, have not agreed. That's going to happen. When you come together as a group, that's going to happen. And it's up to all of us to learn to agree and to live in peace. You might not be all on board with the decision the church might make as a whole, but we have to come together and agree 
and to live in peace. And there is no excuse for the Christian to not love peace. And there's no excuse for Christians to not live at peace with one another, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's no excuse for Christians to not live in peace with the outside world around us, with our friends and with our neighbors. There's no excuse. See, Paul says, you know, as, as, as far as it, de- it depends on you, live at peace. Seek to live at peace with everyone. The Christian life is a life of peace. And when we do these things, the God of love and peace, the God from whom all love and all peace and all reconciliation, the God that we rejoice in, the God that we just read who made everything good, the God who created the earth, the God who created humanity and pronounced it all good, will live at peace with us. And if we can learn that, we can then show that and be models of God's peace. But if we get tied up in factions, we will miss it. If we get tied up with, what does this particular political pundit tell me I need to believe right now, right? If you go online, I need to know what Rachel Maddow thinks about this before I can form my own opinion. Or I need to go, I don't know, read Matt Walsh or something like that, or Ben Shapiro. Or no, no, I need to go Jim Acosta, whatever, or Rush Limbaugh, whatever, whoever the liberal counterpart, like, factionalism one of the don't even get me started i look i'll say this and then i'll start to close when i was younger i was huge into rush right not the not the great band i wish i was into rush when i was younger it would have saved me some problems i was really into rush limbaugh i loved rush limbaugh my dad liked rush limbaugh i had a rush for president t-shirt and i wore it at my high school because there was you know there were a lot of lefties there i'm not a lefty by any means i'm kind of middle right um but both have serious issues. But back then I was really right wing. Um, and I had a rush for President t-shirt. And my dad got the Limbaugh letter. And it was like the newsletter. And I used to watch him when he had his little TV show. I was really into Rush. Like huge into Rush. And I remember one day listening to him on the radio. And I got so angry. The libs are doing this. And I got so angry. And my mom saw me getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And she's like, what? if you're going to listen to that, uh, if you're going to get that angry, maybe you shouldn't listen to this anymore. Oh. (laughs) You know, if I'm getting worked up about this, maybe I shouldn't listen to that anymore. And then you have to add on to the fact that your favorite political pundit, when they get in trouble, their backup is, oh, I'm just an entertainer. I'm just an entertainer. When Alex Jones got into trouble, <laughs> you know, the head of InfoWars, the most insane organization probably in the world, when he got in trouble with trying to get custody of his kids during divorce, he was like, I'm just an entertainer. I don't really mean the stuff that I say. And yet people will follow him and buy and digest his stuff. And even Rush said it one time on the air, I'm just an entertainer. And I'm not saying we can't go to sources that we like for news, but we can't let the sources that we listen to, we can't let them tie us up in factionalism because if we do, then we become increasingly unable to speak to one another, which is exactly what's happening now in our country. Some of you are like, please stop talking about this. (laughs) Please stop talking about this. All right, I'll stop talking about it today. I I hear you, I see you, and I will spare you uh, the rest of that. But see, we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that our faith is not something that's confined just to when we're in these four walls or when you're watching me on camera. 
right? Our faith is something that has real world application for how we live our lives. And even if we don't agree with a certain thing that our brothers and sisters are doing, if we are covenanted together in community, we still have to love one another. That was your chance to say amen. Not you sitting here, you guys watching on camera. <laughs> you guys watching on camera. And so, thank you, I appreciate that. And so this Trinity Sunday, brothers and sisters, you know, we heard the creation account, God making all things. We hear Jesus sending the apostles out to teach people to do everything that he commanded them to do and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so to God, as revealed to us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be all glory together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help or food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you all.